You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. I took out a picture from the very first PowerPoint that had these, uh, I don't know why all their dermoscopy models are always like of two women smiling like they're having the best time, but there are these dermatoscopes that they make um, for hair. And you know, it's like, we're like, we're so happy. This is so much fun. I'm investigating her cause of hair loss. But um, <laughs> you can use your dermatoscope. I use the same dermatoscope that I use on regular skin on the scalp. And that question of like getting it wet, that is pretty useful and important because I need to like make everything sit flat and I need to kind of, I prefer having the hair sort of out of the way. And what you're looking at here when you're going to be looking at hair loss is you're looking at the skin, but you're actually looking at the hair shafts. And so it's a little bit of a shift in your focus from what's flat and on the surface to what's also up above the surface and what's happening to those hair follicles. So it's slightly different patterns, but we're going to walk through some of the most common um, patterns seen in hair loss. So we're gonna talk about what's normal. That's always important. So we've talked about what normal moles look like, what angiomas and SKs look like, but we need to talk about what normal scalp and hair looks like. And then we're gonna compare a couple of the most common inflammatory conditions on the scalp, as well as localized hair loss and more diffuse hair loss. So this truly happened. One of the medical students was on the rotation and um, became worried that she had alopecia. So she said, can you, can you look and just make sure that it's okay? Because I've just had a, you know, I feel like it's falling out. So we take her into a room and we put our dermatoscopes down on her scalp and it looks normal. So this is a normal scalp. With normal scalps, you can see two to four hairs grouped together, aggregated. So aggregations are normal. What you're also looking at again is the spacing of these aggregations of hair follicles. And I feel like if I put my fingers kind of down and kind of you know, twisted them around from one to the other, I would never actually have to change how far away that distance is because I can touch one, go to the next, twist a little bit and hit another one. And it's sort of all equidistant. Um, very similarly over here, you can see clustering of hair the hair shaft diameter is consistent uh, for all the hairs coming out of the scalp here. And when you look down onto the scalp skin, again, you're not seeing a lot of redness, any vessels, you're not seeing a lot of scaling. So this is an absolutely normal scalp for a number of reasons. Clustering of hair, the number of hairs grouped together is normal. The findings of the skin are normal and the diameter of the hair is normal. So I sort of have this checklist in my head where I'm looking at number of follicles, spacing of follicles, and things happening in the skin. So we also look at a lot of heads and see this. These are called dirty dots. So dirty dots are really normal and they're found in my children. So this is just what happens when you're a busy kid and your playground is covered in mulch or like that new rubberized mulch or whatever it is, or you only shower every three days. So don't worry that this is like some kind of pigmented lesion. Um, it goes away. So here is a pre-bath photo and a post-bath photo. 
Um, and so if you see this, it's not lice, they don't have parasites, there are these tiny little just kind of dusty dots, um, and very often we just kind of, again, take our alcohol pad, we kind of just brush the scalp in that area pretty well and it comes off. Um, we've removed pigmented lesions in clinic with an alcohol wipe. So that's why the whole act of dermoscopy is so fun because sometimes somebody's like super worried this actually happened to me. Had, he thought he had a pigmented lesion on his palm. I pull out my dermatoscope and as I'm getting ready to look at it, it went away. So um, we always have a good laugh about that. Um, What's also normal are the eccrine coils. So just as Jenny pointed out, there are ostia or openings on the palms and the soles where the sweat glands empty. You can see those same white dots on the scalp. And this is easier to see in people with skin of color. So on the right-hand side is somebody with only a slightly darker skin color um, and somebody who's got a lot more melanin in their skin. And you can see these white, what are called interfollicular dots so they are not the openings of follicles and that's just uh, really important that's why we're going to show a lot of pictures um, small very evenly spaced without hairs coming out of any of them and that's how you're going to know that they're the ostia good all right so which one of these is a normal finding i'm sorry abnormal finding Awesome, yes. So again, sort of that checklist in our heads of uh, how many follicles clustering together, multiple good, evenly spaced, what's happening on the skin, and knowing that some of the changes that you're gonna see are absolutely normal. All right, so here's a slight difference in some of the coiling that you can see in hairs and the way that um, putting immersion or an oil or gel onto the scalp just kind of um, clusters things a little bit more, just pushes them down onto the scalp. Again, personally, I like how having immersion kind of holds the hairs in place so I can really get a good look at, you know, this hair is pretty thick. These are getting a little bit thinner, and this variation in hair size, which we're going to talk about, can be sometimes a sign of an inflammation or a change in the hair, especially uh, androgenetic alopecia gets a variation in hair follicle caliber, kind of the thickness of that, that follicle. So scalp dermatoses, we get lots of people whose hair is normal, but their scalps are just kind of itchy and you're you know, kind of wanting to know what it is. Maybe they don't have a lot of psoriasis in other areas, but they might get it on their scalp. So psoriasis causes these red dots throughout, just like I showed you the picture of the woman with the history of psoriasis, but also non-melanoma skin cancer red dots throughout the area. Again, they bleed easily because those vessels are right up next to the epidermis. Whereas in sebderm, you get more vessels. So kind of lines of vessels, telangiectatic vessels between the hair follicles. When you get a lot of inflammation with uh, processes like lichen planopilaris and changes with uh, central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, CCCA, you start to see some scaling around the hairs, which you don't really see here, or what we call cuffing. Uh, you can also see halos around these hair follicles, which you, again, you're not seeing any pallor around this hair follicle or any of these that you're not seeing similarly throughout. 
So here's another picture. Which, which vascular pattern do you think predominates here? Yep, so these are dots. So dots, 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 dots. This is somebody, again, where you might go digging a little bit harder, looking for a psoriasis somewhere else on their body, or at least say, you know what, what's on your scalp looks like psoriasis. You don't have anything else right now, but keep an eye out. Let me know if something pops up, you know, in your armpit, under the breast, or in the typical areas like on your elbows and your knees. So using our dermatoscopes on the scalp, this is a young woman, she's 10 years old. She comes in with localized hair loss. So at least for me, my immediate thought for a kid with localized hair loss is one of the two most common things, alopecia areata or tinea. Now, doing a KOH of hair, I've read textbooks that this is possible. I don't think that's very easy. I don't think it's easy to see fungal spores and hyphae you know, within a hair follicle. So we're very often pulling out our toothbrushes or our culturettes and like rubbing them vigorously on these kids' heads. And you know, it'd be really nice not to have to wait for a week to get the results back or something. So the derm light is a way that you can look kind of more closely and have an early clinical suspicion of, uh, between those two entities. So on the left-hand side is alopecia areata. This is an inflammatory process, and that inflammatory process causes a constriction. So this is one of the very classically termed exclamation point hairs. It's subtle, but the end of this follicle has a slightly wider caliber than the bottom of this follicle. It's tapered like the top of an exclamation point, except there's no point unless you consider this follicle that has broken off. So these are black dots within hair follicle openings. So again, our, our first thought is, do I see the right number of hairs? Are they grouped normally? Well, yeah, I see the little black dots of what would have been longer hairs, but they've broken off or gone away. Um, but those follicles are still there. I don't see a lot of changes on the skin between the follicles but I do see changes in the caliber of these hairs, and this is at the periphery of a lesion. So this is that center of that alopecia patch over here. This is where you've got preserved hair, and usually right inside the perimeter of that spot of alopecia, you're gonna see these exclamation point hairs. Versus this is tinea capitis, so this is a fungal infection that also causes hair fragility and breakage, but when it does it, it causes they call these comma-shaped hairs, but I think they look like hockey sticks. So hockey sticks helps me remember ectothrix or endothrix, which is you know, the name of tinea capitis. So sticks and thrix, this is an infection. I need to put this person on an oral antifungal. So this is just a hair that's broken off. Uh, these are some of the curved hairs as well. So alopecia areata, tinea, what you're not seeing anywhere in this picture of tinea is that tapering. So this is another young woman who comes in with localized hair loss. 
And what's slightly different in people with skin of color is that rather than having this hockey stick or comma-shaped hair, they are called corkscrew hairs. But again, we're lumpers. Like, this is a structural bending or change in the hair. This is also tinea capitis. It's just that because of the naturally kind of curly or spiraled shape of African-American hair, um, this is a corkscrew shape rather than a hockey stick shape. So all tinea, all breakage and bending. This one is just to orient you and to compare and contrast. This is still alopecia areata with the exclamation point hairs. One of the other things that you can see where rather than having the hair follicle broken off and still visible at the surface are these yellow dots. These are just the openings of the hair follicle. They think that the slightly yellower color is due to maybe some of the inflammation that's happening around the hair follicle, but this is still a sign that there are follicles there, and it's a finding that's seen in alopecia areata. This is another finding of alopecia areata. It's called a caudability hair. And I was like, again, why are these dermoscopy people making everything so hard with all these words? Can't they just call it another like bent hair or something? Um, but what they said was, this is a hair that has a weakness in it, this bend. And when you push on it, you get, you get this bend. And that reminds us of a coudé catheter. I was like, what? Seriously, how many people in like dermatology remember what a coudé catheter is from urology? But it made me remember it. So a caudability hair derived from the bent term of this instrument called a coudé catheter is also a finding of alopecia areata. And it's very similar. If you just ignore the bottom part of this follicle and look from this constriction upwards, it looks like an exclamation point hair. It's just that the constriction is above the level of the scalp rather than being right down against the skin. Um, I'm looking over here in this image. You can see a little bit, this is a little bit of a normal uh, diameter and then it's getting constricted. Uh, that's an exclamation point hair. All right. So related to alopecia areata, we talked about several of the findings. Which one of these is not a finding in alopecia areata? Good, so comma hairs, these are seen in what? Tinea, yep. All right, so I think we all get a lot of people who come in with a concern for hair loss. Um, and one, it can be anxiety provoking, both for the patient and for me. Um, but having sort of an approach where at least I feel I can work through the diagnosis um, has helped. But this is somebody where you walk in and you might immediately say like, yes, there is a decreased density of hair. I can see her scalp and I should not be able to see this much scalp. So you're already thinking she does not have bald patches. You know, I'd probably comb around and look for them, but you're not going to find them. So she has a diffuse or generalized hair loss over her scalp. And the two most common things that pop into my head are going to be telogen effluvium or an androgenetic alopecia. And luckily, there are some differences that we can see on uh, trichoscopy or dermoscopy. So 
This is androgenetic alopecia, and on the left is telogen effluvium. And if you look at this picture and say, I think you're wrong, I think that's normal, you would be right. It is very hard to differentiate somebody who is normal from somebody with telogen effluvium. Essentially, they lacked findings of any other form of hair loss. Um, but we are very challenged at being able to detect hair loss. Patients are much better at being able to say like, yeah, my ponytail is just not quite as you know, thick as it used to be. But when we look down at their scalp, you know, maybe you see some single hairs here or there, but mostly you're seeing clustering. The spacing is looking pretty good. Again, you can kind of walk your way from one cluster of hairs to another, and you're not seeing a lot of inflammation. In contrast, it helps to be looking at a lot of normal scalps when we then look at androgenetic alopecia. We're seeing a lot more single hairs. The spacing starting to get a little bit wider. So you're having to stretch your finger a little bit more to get from one hair to another. And what you're also seeing are some of these finer caliber hairs. They're just not as thick and robust as the others. So there's a variation in hair caliber on the scalp. And so what they've called this is anisotrichosis, which is drawn from anisocytosis. So a hematologist describe variation, or uh, the Latin is unequal or uneven in red blood cells. And when I read this, this was actually pretty useful because it really made a lot of sense to what I was seeing on the scalp. If we go back to Anne, she then says, yeah, not only has my hair been falling out, but it's been like really itchy. Well, for a lot of my patients with telogen effluvium and androgenetic alopecia, it's mostly asymptomatic. They're worried about the hair loss they're seeing, but it's not that they're saying it feels itchy or painful. So then I start to switch gears and say, well, I wonder if they have a scarring type of hair loss. Could this be like in Plano pilaris or a person with skin of color? You might also be thinking about CCCA. So being able to identify when there is scarring and a complete obliteration or loss of hair follicles is really important. And before I used dermoscopy, the only way I could do that was with a biopsy. And I was always having to take four millimeter punch biopsies from people's heads. And that's not a lot of fun for them, and it's not really fun for me, because it's always just bleeding, you know, just. Um, so scarring hair loss. How do we find scarring? So again, it's looking at can we mark off the distance from the cluster of hairs and hit another cluster of hairs, or at least see that yellow dot or that ostia. In this patient, there's a couple things happening. So I want to point out you're seeing a little bit of scaling here. We're seeing some single hairs, sorry, and we can also say when I space off from one to another, like there should be one here. There maybe should be another one here. There should be another one over here. But we're not seeing any of those dots. And if anything, we see a slight pallor or pinkness. And this is a sign of scarring and fibrosis. So a loss of that appropriate spacing of follicles and a lack of the opening. So lower density, no ostia, and a smoothness and pinkness. So picture on the left, what do you see here? Yellow dots. What are these guys? Yep. So thick at the top, skinny at the bottom, exclamation point. How about over in this picture? What do we see? 
So this is somebody with darker skin color. These are the ostea. So these are the follicular openings. And we can also see their upside down exclamation points, but a tapering follicle. So same thing, preserved ostea. How about which one of these pictures has scarring hair loss? The one on the left. So we put pictures side by side because when I was first learning this, they would throw up just the picture on the left. And I'd be like, why are there no ostea? I can't see it. But if you pull up an atlas and even just bring it into the room with you, patients appreciate that you're doing the best you can do for them. Um, so having a picture of what a scalp looks like when there are ostea, have it open and see if you can find you know, the lack or the scarring. But what we see here is this smoothness, the lack of these little donuts or kind of yellow tan dots that are the ostea, just complete smooth also single hairs at the periphery here. So this is a sign that there's absolutely a hair loss and the concern is it's a scarring hair loss. All right, so again, kind of uh, reference photos on the left. What do you think, scarring or non-scarring? Scarring. And so SOS, little mnemonic, if you see singlet ostea, meaning single hairs, that is worrisome. Something bad is happening, and it's most likely a scarring hair loss. We can see that um, peripylar or perifollicular scaling. That's very often seen in lichen planopilaris. And so in total, because we're seeing scarring, this smooth, complete lack of the appropriate clustering of hair follicles and spacing, as well as this smooth pink-white color, along with this colorative scale. This is in the family of lichen planopilaris. And when it happens in a band-like distribution at the front of the scalp, it's called frontal fibrosing alopecia, which can happen in both Caucasian and uh, people with skin of color. Um, so this is really important to find because we need to jump on the treatment and we need to set expectations, which is we can't always regrow hair through a scar. I tell people scars like a brick wall, like you're not gonna get a follicle to regrow through there. Um, so hence kind of helping them understand the, the natural history and risks associated with not treating or treating. And here's another patient. Again, you can walk into the room and already get a sense that you're seeing too much skin, too much scalp skin on this part. And so you wanna put your dermalite down on there. And this is one of those times where you are going to see those interfollicular white dots, which are the openings of what? Eccrine coils, yep. So you're not supposed to see a hair follicle. So don't let your eye get tricked into thinking, oh yeah, there's follicles, you're just fine. These are follicles. And this is a perifollicular white halo, which is a sign of central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia which is why I call it CCCA. Um, on the right-hand side, this is a reference photo of somebody with tinea capitis. So this is a normal distribution and density of hairs compared to here where you've got singlet hairs, perifollicular halo, and you're just not, like there should be a follicle here and here and here and here all around this and you just don't see it. So this is someone, again, jump on treatment. This is a scarring hair loss. There are good options, but we're never gonna regrow all the hair they had. 
Um, Dr. Tosti is a world-renowned expert in alopecia. She's from Italy. She's um, done a lot of work looking at how to organize sort of a thought process for uh, dermoscopy or what they call trichoscopy. That's just a, again, fancy word for dermoscopy of hair. Um, and there are some very good review articles out there as well. So what's normal? Remember the interfollicular dots. Having osteo is important. Uh, the dirty dots in kids. Dots versus linear vessels. Uh, localized hair loss, looking for exclamation point hairs and preservation of the ostea. Similarly, I have broken and bent hairs, either commas or corkscrews. And then in diffuse hair loss, this is really important. Non-scarring versus scarring. Um, looking for the follicular openings, looking for that variation, again, this anisotrichosis or unequal size, looking for halos, scarring, redness, and again, also scarring. So we're gonna transition now to dermoscopy in special sites of um, nails. So we'll do questions for hair and nails together at the end. And this is great. Now we have a mouse pointer, so it'll be easier for me not to mess up my slides. You have to keep it over the paper, it seems Got like. it, okay. So we're gonna talk about dermoscopy of nails. And I think um, what's helpful initially is just to kind of talk about nail anatomy. Um, when I had my anatomy class in med school, we didn't talk about the names for different areas of the nail, um, but we use that all the time in dermatology. So just to make sure we're all kind of oriented and on the same page. Um, the whole hard part is the nail plate, okay? The skin on either side of that nail plate is called the nail fold. So we have lateral nail folds on either side, and then we have a proximal nail fold beneath. That thin white tissue membrane that connects the proximal nail fold to the plate is the cuticle. So just that little white band is the cuticle. This white half moon shaped structure is the lunula of the nail. And that corresponds to this, where the cells of the nail matrix are. So the, the cells that are making our nail plate are where this half moon shaped lunula is. And it sort of fans out on either side, kind of like a flying saucer shape. Um, so those matrix cells actually are a little bit wider as we go down into the proximal nail fold and they go behind uh, the cuticle and, and are under the proximal nail fold. Um, the hyponychium just it refers to the little space here between the free edge of the nail plate and your fingertip. The nail bed is that skin right under the plate. And then again, these, this purplish area, this is the nail matrix. People often talk about proximal versus distal nail matrix. Uh, and the reason that's important, this is the proximal nail matrix, this is the distal. The cells down here in the proximal part of the nail matrix are making the top part of the nail plate, whereas the cells down here in the distal matrix are kind of making the bottom part of the nail plate. And so when we look at a nail on end, 
when we're looking for at a pigmented process in a nail, if we see pigment that is just on the upper part of the plate, but the lower part of the plate doesn't have that pigment, it means that whatever's making that pigment is arising back in the proximal part of our nail matrix. So we're gonna have to biopsy a little further back than if we're perhaps only seeing pigment on the lower half. Um, a lot of times we see pigment through and through the entire plate, um, but that, that way the nail is made kind of can help us know where to biopsy. So just like trichoscopy is the fancy name for hair dermoscopy, onychoscopy is the fancy name for nail dermoscopy. Um, and this does require the use of some type of fluid immersion medium and we want something that's a little bit thicker than just a quick swipe with alcohol. You need something that is more of a, a gel. So hand sanitizer gel works really well. When you're doing nail dermoscopy, it's important that you examine all of those anatomic structures. So you wanna look at the nail folds with your dermatoscope, the cuticle, the plate, that free edge, looking at the nail on end, uh, the hyponychium, the skin right there underneath the free edge of the nail plate. And you're gonna have to kind of vary your focus of your device while you're doing this because the nail is rounded. Some structures are a little higher, some structures are a little lower. So it, it takes a little bit longer to evaluate uh, a nail lesion because you do have to change your focus a little bit. We don't really have as clean or easy or reproducible or valid an algorithm for uh, evaluating pigmented lesions in nails as we do on the rest of the skin. This is one from uh, a recent article that I think you know, overall works pretty well. So if we have a patient with a pigmented spot, streak, strike, globule in a nail, the first question we wanna know is, is it due to melanin? Because again, our biggest concern is gonna be melanoma. So if we say, no, this isn't melanin, this is a fungal infection or a bacterial infection uh, or a subungual hematoma, we're gonna feel reassured. If we say it's melanin, the next thing we wanna do is look at all of the nails on this patient. If a patient has multiple pigmented areas of their nails, it's a little bit more reassuring that what we're looking at is not a melanoma. If it is isolated in only one nail, uh, that's gonna be a little bit more concerning. And the next thing we wanna do is look at how old the patient is. In an adult with a new single pigmented, melanocytic pigmented lesion in the, in the nail, you're, you're probably gonna biopsy that. In a child though, melanoma of the nail unit can occur it is exceedingly, exceedingly rare. So it is not a bad idea to watch this and monitor it with photographs um, over the course of, a few, of say, th three months again, bring them back and make sure that it is not changing dramatically because it is, A, rare to get melanoma in the nail unit and B, rare to get melanoma in children. So you put that together, super, super rare. So let's kind of talk about how we're gonna figure out, is this melanin or is this exogenous pigment? In a nail, when we look at pigment, melanocytic pigment is characterized by little teeny dots and then these often straight lines. But these little teeny dots are little melanin globules. 
as opposed to non-melanocytic pigment, which is often more globular, often not, may not be brown. Um, in a hematoma like this, there's often a big globular area with little tiny dots around it. And when you look with your dermatoscope, depending on the age of that hematoma, you may be lucky enough to see that red-purple color that can also be reassuring. So let's, we're going to talk a little bit about nail pigment abnormalities that dermat, uh, dermatoscopy or trichoscopy can, <laughs> otocoscopy can help us with. Oh, we've been talking for a long time. Um, <laughs> so we'll talk about pigment of non-melanocytic origin and melanocytic origin. And there's, there are a lot of reasons that you can have pigment in the nails. And there are a lot of reasons you can have pigment in your nails that, are, that is caused by melanin pigment. And it's not always melanoma. So we're going to talk about a bunch of different reasons. They're, again, fairly rare, all of these. Um, so we won't spend a lot of time on each of them. But there are a number of reasons we can see melanin in the nail. All right, let's start with non-melanocytic pigmentation. So this is pigment from the outside, perhaps. So we have the picture on the right with the smoker who's got that tobacco staining of the nails. Um, again, you often get the clue because their fingers are the same color as their nail and they smell like smoke when they come into your office. Um, but that's an exogenous staining. Um, Things like hair dye, henna tattoos, silver nitrate can cause a stain on the nail plate. It's not, we're not going to see little tiny globules or dots of pigment or straight lines. Um, and it may or may not affect one or many nails. But pigment can come from the outside. This is where your history is going to be important. Probably the most common form of non-melanocytic pigment and probably the most common thing we see, maybe, or second most, Maybe, maybe onychomycosis, but subungual hemorrhage is something that patients will come in very worried that they have a melanoma because it's so dark looking. Um, so again, usually there is a red to red-black globule um, and then little tiny red or black brown dots around the periphery. Um, the distal part of the nail, uh, where there's been a subungual hemorrhage, often has little teeny streaks that look sort of like splinter hemorrhages. Um, you're not going to see little tiny brown, less than 0.1 millimeter melanin granules. You may see little slightly larger red globules at the periphery, but not those brown tiny dots. Um, and it's important, it's interesting to note that a lot of patients who have had nail melanomas will report that they had a trauma to their nail beforehand. So while it's important to ask patients, do you remember slamming your thumb in the car door? Um, if they say yes, and you look at it, and you don't see these normal features of a subungual hemorrhage, or it's not growing out, it may still be a melanoma. So here are some images of the subungual hemorrhages. Um, again, you can kind of sometimes get that more red-purple idea um, when you look closely. But a lot of times when they're older, they look more brown-black. So you don't always have that red color to go on. But you do have sort of these globules of pigment that are large within some little peripheral dots around the edge, um, very well circumscribed, growing out as the nail grows out. Um, and then distally near the tip, you get these splinter hemorrhage-like areas. 
fungal or bacterial infections, that's the other really common form of exogenous pigmentation that we see in the, in the nail. Um, the fungal infections usually have a, a more white, yellow, sort of creamy, milky hue to, to the uh, pigment, whereas bacteria, and Pseudomonas is the main one we see, causes that really distinctive green color of the nail. All right, so now let's talk about melanocytic pigment. And that was that list that was really, really long. There are a lot of reasons that we can see melanocytic pigment in a nail. Um, one is of the common ones is drug-induced. There are a number of drugs that can cause the nails to pigment. Um, AZT, antimalarials, sulfa antibiotics, tetracycline antibiotics. So things that we actually prescribe routinely can in some patients cause their nails to develop pigmentation. Drug-induced pigmentation usually has sort of a grayish brown hue and frequently, again, involves multiple nails. So this is usually not just one fingernail with a new stripe down the middle, it's multiple nails. It can sometimes be um, horizontal, actually. So here we've got horizontal pigmentation from a drug, um, and here more linear. Uh, and sometimes the entire nail can start to change color from a drug. We see this a little bit more commonly in people with darker skin types. Uh, and when you stop the medication, that will usually go away over a few months. Um, but people will often come in really worried because suddenly their nails are changing color. Uh, again, reassuring when it's on multiple nails and then you want to kind of look at their medicine list always and then hit the books and say, boy, has nail pigmentation ever been associated with any of these medications? Endocrine diseases can sometimes cause an increase in pigmentation in the nail that may be linear stripes uh, or longitudinal streaks in the nail, or maybe just diffuse hyperpigmentation of the nail. Um, so all of these endocrine disorders or pregnancy, I would not consider a disorder, hormonal changes can cause discoloration of the nails. Again, multiple nails, not just one isolated nail, um, but it can be a sign of endocrine disease. So you wanna consider that when you're seeing multiple nails with pigment change asking patients about their medical history or signs or symptoms perhaps of endocrine disease. Very, very, very rarely inflammatory diseases can cause an increase in pigment. Now these pictures don't show that, and I had a hard time finding any pictures to show that. It's been reported that sometimes you can get increased pigment, but when you see pigment in a patient who has inflammatory changes of a nail, like those shown here. So these pits in the nail in a patient with psoriasis, this dystrophic nail, which is called pterygium in a patient with lichen planus. If you see pigment in conjunction with these signs of inflammatory disease, um, it may be just related to that inflammatory disease. Very, very rare though. Rather, the nail exam may help you pick up subtle pits or signs of inflammation uh, when you're trying to diagnose an inflammatory dermatosis. There are some rare inherited conditions that can cause pigment changes in the nail. I've never seen anyone with Legere-Hunziker syndrome, have you? Uh, we had two this year. Wow, mm -hmm. two this year. Mm -hmm. All right, so in Pennsylvania, there are a lot of patients apparently with Legere-Hunziker syndrome, not so many in Utah, um, but it can cause 
linear pigment in the nail. So if you see lots of pigment, they often have pigment in other un, sort of somewhat unusual areas. Um, but you know, think that there are some inherited conditions or syndromes. Look elsewhere on their skin for signs of increased pigment in other places uh, that may help you say, oh no, it's not your medication, it's that you have this condition. And then what we really are wondering about is what about melanocytic tumors? Um, or not, well, sorry, I'll get there. Non-melanocytic tumors, squames, basal cells, can sometimes cause pigment in the nail plate as well. Most common is pigmented Bowen's disease, or like a squame in situ in the nail, can sometimes cause uh, melanin production in the nail, uh, in the nail matrix, nail bed, where that tumor is. And so anytime you see longitudinal melaninicia, meaning a brown stripe longitudinally down the nail in association with an obvious tumor, a deformity of the nail plate, a bump, a growth, that needs a biopsy. Um, because it will be impossible to say whether it's a melanoma or whether it's a pigmented squame, but it has to be biopsied. Um, Nutritional deficiencies rarely can cause melanocytic pigmentation, um, usually again more diffuse rather than longitudinal and there may be uh, signs of pig increased pigment over the knuckles too with B12 or folate deficiency. And then sometimes repetitive trauma can lead to hyperpigmentation in the nail plate. I see this a lot. Um, I live in Park City, Utah, where I have people that ski all winter and run all summer, and so their toenails, there is not a nice looking toenail in, in Park City, Utah. Um, but repeated trauma um, can cause increase in not just hemorrhage or bleeding from that trauma, but increased pigment as well. There's often usually a change in the, the, the nail plate surface as well. The whole nail does not look, look normal, but it's not a tumor. Uh, some systemic diseases uh, that we haven't talked about, inflammatory diseases, can cause increased pigmentation. Um, rarely it's been reported with some rheumatologic conditions like lupus and scleroderma. Really what I think our dermatoscopes are helpful for when we're considering rheumatologic disease is actually looking at the nail fold capillaries. So we go back here, this is that proximal nail fold. So we have the cuticle and then the proximal nail fold. And we wanna see if the capillaries are dilated, if there's thrombosis, those little black spots. These are findings that are typical in scleroderma and dermatomyositis. Uh, and they're, they're indistinguishable, so you can't look at it and say this is a patient that has scleroderma or has dermatomyositis. Um, it can be really helpful at distinguishing a patient who may have lupus versus dermatomyositis, which we often are uh, faced with. And so dermatomyositis will cause these nail fold changes, lupus typically does not. People who have darker skin types may also have dark bands of color or darker nails. So this is called ethnic nail pigmentation. This is physiologic. Um, it can be in single but more often multiple nails and there may be um, multiple bands within the same nail. So here there's a band here and a band here. Um, here much of the nail is involved, but here again usually multiple nails and in a person who has a darker skin type. Now we're going to get on to melanocytic neoplasms that can cause pigment. So you can get a lentigo, 
or a melanotic macule under the, under the nail, in the nail bed or the nail matrix. When we see that, it's usually a light tannish brown color. It is composed of bands that are of similar, little teeny bands of similar caliber, similar width. So we don't see a big fat longitudinal band next to a skinny one, next to a broken one. They're parallel, they're very homogenous, and they're usually light brown, tan, or even slightly lightly gray. We can get nevi in the nail bed or in the nail matrix. Um, again, these are gonna be composed of multiple thin brown lines. You can't necessarily tell whether something is a lentigo or a nevus just by using your dermatoscope. That would be a biopsy diagnosis because the features are gonna be very similar, usually very uniform, similar caliber, parallel lines making up that band. You might, it's hard to see, but the, there are some little tiny, if you can see from the back, I don't know, dots of melanin pigment. So this is, this is a nevus. Um, the spacing of those lines is the, is the same. Again, usually gonna affect just a single nail. So that's what differentiates it from a lot of the uh, other um, non-neoplastic melanocytic changes of the nail. Um, and the, the band is usually fairly uniform. Now, if I looked at this nail, I would be a little bit worried. I see two shades of color uh, in this that are, and probably some lines that are a little bit different in their caliber. Nail dermoscopy is, I think, is, it's, we don't have features that really allow us to distinguish benign from malignant as well with nail dermoscopy as we do with skin surface uh, microscopy or dermoscopy. And so biopsying, again, like we saw in that first algorithm, a new pigmented linear band in a single digit in a patient that's an adult, biopsy is never gonna be the wrong answer. Um, if this patient came in and said, I've had this forever, I really don't wanna biopsy it, I might give them the option of a photograph and a really short-term follow-up, again, maybe three months, and watch this very closely. Um, but without that history, I think this person definitely needs a biopsy. Turns out that one was amoebus. Who does your biopsies? So that's a good question, Jocelyn, who asked, who does my nail biopsies? So um, if you do not, have, if you don't do nail biopsies or don't have a physician in your office who does nail biopsies, um, you can refer to a hand surgeon, plastic surgeon for this. Um, always important to make a phone call yourself when you're referring for this because this is something you don't want to wait for perhaps two, three months before the patient gets in for this. You need to pick up the phone. I'm really worried this person has a nail unit melanoma. Can you do a biopsy? Um, many dermatologists do biopsies of the, the nail bed and nail matrix. So you might have somebody in your office that can do it. And again, this is something to do right away, just like you wouldn't want a melanoma walking out of your office that's on the rest of the skin. You don't want a nail unit melanoma walking out of your office without a really good plan for close follow-up or biopsy. Um, just a little bit of kind of background information and epidemiology of, of melanoma of the nail unit. Um, 
It has, nail matrix melanoma has the same incidence across all races, but it's the most frequent type that we see in people with darker skin types. So people with darker skin types are less likely to get melanoma, um, but when they get melanomas, they're more likely to be these acral uh, melanomas that may affect the nail unit. We typically see them in middle-aged or elderly individuals. Interestingly, the thumb, the big toe, and the index finger are the fingers and toes most likely to, to develop a melanoma. I don't know why, but there are lots of good studies that show that those three areas are the most common uh, location for melanomas. And as I mentioned before, up to 50% of people will say, yeah, I had something that happened to that nail prior to the development of that discoloration. Whether that is recall bias, whether they kind of think, see this stripe and then think back and think, oh yeah, maybe, maybe I did jam my finger or toe before this happened, um, or whether it is true that maybe trauma can be a trigger for these um, is up for debate, but you can't let that history of trauma dissuade you from a biopsy when you think you have melanocytic uh, pigment in a single digit, particularly index finger, thumb, big toe that is new in an adult. Eventually, you will have nail dystrophy. We want to catch these before we have dystrophy of the nail loss of the nail plate architecture. Um, and so that's, that's why kind of biopsying these early, um, if we wait to the point we have dystrophy, we've got a, a vertical growth phase melanoma that is going to have a poor prognosis. So nail matrix melanoma. Um, again, usually brown to black color, but those lines making up the melanoma are of varying color, varying width and caliber. They may not be parallel exactly, so there may be lines that break or, or um, kind of are at more of an angle. Um, do I have? Uh, as in a rapidly growing melanoma, and I may have another slide to show you this, um, the, the band is usually wider proximally than it is distally because this melanoma is growing radially and the nail, is, the nail growth is slow. So the, there may be a broader uh, character of the band near the proximal nail fold than at the distal end. Hutchinson sign. Hutchinson's sign, when we're talking about the nail unit and pigmented lesions, refers to pigmentation of the nail fold, cuticle, and the surrounding skin, like the proximal or lateral nail fold. So this is Hutchinson's sign. We see pigment here on the cuticle, on the proximal and lateral nail fold. That's in contrast to what we call pseudo-Hutchinson sign. Pseudo-Hutchinson sign is when we can see pigment through the cuticle, here and here. So the cuticle itself isn't pigmented. We're still seeing that band because the melanocytic neoplasm creating it is back here in the matrix under the proximal nail fold. But the cuticle and the skin of the nail fold is not pigmented. Hutchinson sign is bad. So this equals high concern for melanoma. Pseudo-Hutchinson sign is not necessarily a concern for melanoma. Um, 
pseudo-Hutchinson sign does not mean it's not melanoma, however. Um, but when you see the term Hutchinson sign or when you use it, you want to say, see pigment in the cuticle and nail fold, not just beneath it. This is the uh, phenomenon I was talking about a moment ago where rapidly growing melanomas, the lines uh, at the, in the band, they're not parallel, but the diameter is, and the diameter is wider proximally than it is distally. So you kind of get this tapering of the pigment as you look towards the distal nail plate. Subungual melanoma refers to nail unit melanoma that affects the nail bed. When you have a melanoma of the nail bed rather than the matrix, you often get deformation because that's a tumor growing under the nail, ultimately affecting the, the plate itself. Um, but the pigment may also start midway through the nail if it's a nail bed melanoma as opposed to a nail matrix melanoma where the pigment starts right back by the cuticle or just behind it. So there are a number of pitfalls for dermoscopy of nail units for melanoma. Um, it is not a substitute for biopsy if there is any doubt about the cause of longitudinal melanonychia, longitudinal pigmented streaks in the nail. Um, it's really difficult for very thick nails, um, or if the nail is totally black in color, you can't really see bands, you can't tell much about it, it's possible it's drug-induced, you can't, you can't exclude that it's melanoma, so a uh, couple of, of, of additional pitfalls. Um, brown bands with irregular lines, of irregular color and spacing and width don't necessarily mean melanoma in kids. So as I said, kids rarely get melanoma. Um, they rarely get, even more rarely, get subungual or uh, nail matrix melanoma. So in children, this is not really a reliable tool at all. And sometimes there can be longitudinal melanonychia in an adult that looks really abnormal, and you send them off for a biopsy, and you find out that it's a benign nevus. So the sensitivity and specificity, basically, of our onychoscopy is not as great as dermoscopy for pigmented lesions on the rest of the skin. So I think at this point, basically, what we know is the decision to do a biopsy or excise something needs to combine the clinical history, our exam, and the dermoscopy, but should not rely on dermoscopy. It's an it's a adjunctive tool that's very, very adjunctive. When should we biopsy? Again, if there is isolated pigment in a single digit in an adult, you want to do a biopsy. If somebody has had pigmentation of their nails for a long time but suddenly reports a change uh, in that pigmentation pattern, you want to do a biopsy. You want to look at the, the thumb, the index finger, and the big toe with a greater degree of suspicion for melanoma. These are the most common locations. If you have somebody who's already had a history of one melanoma, you know they have a higher risk of another one. So if they present with a new longitudinal pigmented band in the nail, you want to biopsy that one, even if it looks light in color and fairly normal. Um, anytime you see anything that's affecting the architecture of the nail plate or making the nail plate fall off and has pigment, you want to do a biopsy then. Anytime you see pigmentation of the skin around the nail, meaning that Hutchinson sign around the cuticle, the nail folds, um, or at the nail bed or distal uh, hyponychium, you want to do a biopsy.
And then anytime somebody has a history of trauma but that nail plate is not growing out with normal pigment proximally, you want to biopsy that. Okay, let's do a question here. Which of these is the most, is more reassuring of a benign nail unit lesion? New acquired pigmentation, parallel lines of pigment, pigment with nail dystrophy, or single lesion in isolation? Great, so parallel lines of pigment. Again, similar width, light color, similar spacing. That's more reassuring. It doesn't equal benign always, but it's more reassuring. Whereas a new change, um, something that has nail dystrophy and is in a single nail is gonna be a little bit more concerning. Which of these shows Hutchinson's sign? Great, A. So we see true pigmentation of the cuticle, the proximal nail fold, whereas in these other examples, we're seeing pigment that is actually underneath. Oops, can I go? Yeah, I want to go back to that picture. Try to get there. I'm going the wrong way. Okay. So here we see pigment that's underneath, but the cuticle over top is not affected. And this, this is easier to see in person sometimes than in photographs. And we've got some references. And now I think we can take some questions on hair and nails, but probably is there an evaluation first? So the first one I think is for you, Joss. Yeah. Uh, so how many patients do we have who come in with a lot of paritis but no actual changes on exam? I would say it's less, less than the majority. So uh, for most people who have an itchy scalp, I do see something, but uh, there are a good number of people who may have neurogenic paritis due to arthritis in their necks or spines that results in itchiness on the scalp with no primary skin findings. Um, certainly psychogenic paritis where people are scratching or itching and perhaps creating more of a lichen simplex or um, parigonodule afterwards. I think that the main thing is to really look and just make sure you're not seeing an inflammatory dermatosis because the treatment of that is gonna be different for our patients with uh, neurogenic paritis where there's no primary skin findings. We don't use a lot of topical steroids. There's no inflammatory process unless they're creating one through the action of scratching. So our favorite go-to medication is uh, gabapentin or Neurontin, uh, which helps to settle some of the C-fiber nerves that contribute to both uh, pain and itching. Um, it's very hard to find topical things that are not steroids that you can put on your scalp. It's very hard to find things like uh, Promoxine. Um, people talk about capsaicin, but it's not easy to find or easy to use for most people. So um, that's a challenge. But uh, Jenny actually does a lot of work with connective tissue disease. So I think it's just important to also remember that intense scalp itching can sometimes be dermatomyositis. Uh, so you just want to make sure that, again, you're looking at the nail folds, you're looking for other signs of dermatomyositis, um, but intense scalp itching can be a part of that. 
Uh, what type of immersion do you use when looking at the scalp, rubbing alcohol? So I use a rubbing alcohol, a hand sanitizer, which is a gel, or when I've been desperate, we also have the foam hand sanitizers, and I just kind of quickly pump out three of those and put it on the scalp and then smash my dermatoscope down on it. Um, so it's, it's just a matter of uh, finding something, and uh, sometimes I carry it in my pocket, like a little bottle of hand sanitizer. Um, how do you docu document uh, telogen effluvium, I'm guessing, um, in my notes? So a lot of it is what the patient tells me that they're noticing. So clinical, was there any medical uh, stressor, psychological stressor, anything that might have uh, been playing a role? And then I document my findings. The focus of the talk today was really on dermoscopy and trichoscopy, but remember, you can do hair pulls and people bring in bags of hair for you and, you know, you can incorporate all of that into your note as sort of the evidence for your thought process. Um, how do I work up a 19-year-old female with androgenetic alopecia? So that's a great question. Um, I think it's just important to remember that there's a bell curve, this you know, width of when diseases happen. And while we think of androgenic alopecia happening you know, in 30s, 40s, 50s, there have been a couple of women and young men who've come in with very strong family histories of androgenetic alopecia with you know, the history that, yeah, everyone in my family loses their hair and they always start losing their hair in their 20s and then she's there in that same period of time. So all of that can definitely play a role, as well as the inspection of the rest of that person. So if they look like they have the habitus or uh, symptoms of polycystic ovaries, then you know that's, that's an answer for you. So you're taking a lot of things into account. But just because somebody's 19 and has androgenetic alopecia doesn't mean that I'm running a battery of uh, blood tests on them. Do you have a different approach? No, I think it's a, it's, you take all of those factors into consideration. But again, not always lab tests, agreed. So the app that I use is one that I have to use because it's part of our electronic uh, medical uh, record made by Cerner. So the only way I can embed pictures into our medical record is through that app. Um, if you have Cerner and you want to know what the app is, come in and I can tell you afterwards. Um, but otherwise, I just use the regular camera on my iPhone if I'm, say, taking it for publication or something like that. Hand, yeah. The comments Dermlight may have an app for that. I haven't, I haven't used that one, but yeah, that's certainly likely. For the, there are companies like HandyScope and others that make the attachment that goes on the outside of your iPhone, and those devices, if you buy them to fit onto your iPhone, will typically have an app that interfaces with the equipment. Um, what do you see in traction alopecia? So great question. You'll see uh, follicles within, uh, sorry, uh, hair follicles within the ostea. They're typically broken off. They're also typically dystrophic, meaning they're bent or broken. You can see scarring in those cases. So for a lot of women who've had very tight hairstyles for decades, that hair is not going to regrow even if they stop the tight uh, hairstyles. Um, there's some other changes that you can see. They're not at the top of my mind. I didn't include them in the talk today, but I can definitely update you if you come up. Um, but that is an important form of alopecia that also can be scarring. Um, for cases of CCCA and LPP, would you do a scalp biopsy for confirmation before starting treatment? So 
not recently. Um, the conversation I've had with my patients is, based on what I'm seeing today, both with my eye and with my magnifying glass, I think that you have a form of scarring hair loss. I think that these treatments would be effective. Let's use them for the next three months. I'm gonna take pictures today. I'll reevaluate you. If it's not better, then I think we need to do a biopsy then. But they also have the option of saying, Yes, I would love it if you took a punch biopsy in my scalp today at the first visit. So um, I, I try and have that conversation with them, but having a scalp biopsy is not always something people are looking forward to. Um, when I do a punch biopsy of the scalp, it's important to remember that it's gonna cause a scar. So I try not to do it right where they would part their hair anyway. So I'm usually trying to put it kind of in a place where I'm gonna get good data. So around a place that has the alopecia, typically at the periphery rather than an old burned out area, um, but also in a place where it's not gonna be immediately visible based on how they style their hair. Traction alopecia, we just talked a little bit about that. I think we need to do a hair course. Yeah, I guess so. Um, will you still see perifollicular scale? Yes, yeah. So um, the alcohol that we put on is not so much that it completely moisturizes or obliterates the scale. You can still see it. Um, how you compare? So acrine coil, small white dots, very uh, regularly distributed. They're a little bit smaller in their size. Um, and when you look at a field of them, you'll see that none of them have a hair coming out. Ostia are a little bit bigger, and because they're bigger, you often get a sense of two rings as it goes from the wider opening to uh, slightly down below the infundibulum of the hair follicle, so it sort of looks like a donut on the skin. So it's slightly bigger, and when you look at the size of those on the skin and you look at the field of the size of those dots, you can see some of them with hairs coming out. Um, but it, with a scarring alopecia, it scars everything. So in some of those pictures, you didn't see interfollicular white dots with, say, the LPP. There was nothing. It was just a field of white. Uh, with the woman who had the CCCA, you could see the white halos around her hair follicles, but the interfollicular um, uh, white dots were still there around the eccrine coils. So I mentioned, I use the Dermlight 2, which I've had for a few years. I really like it. Yeah, I have, I have the Dermlight as well. And again, I have uh, non-polarized dermatoscopes in my exam rooms. They may be Welsh Allen, but I'm not even 100% sure. No question. Oh, sorry, can you, I'm so expecting you to answer all of the questions. Can you use a polarized derm dermoscope for the nail exam, or do you need non-polarized due to hand sanitizer immersion medium? You really ideally want to use the immersion medium to see the different depths. You can use it. You can maybe get a better sense of Hutchinson sign if you're using non-contact to see is this really in the, in the cuticle and nail fold or not. Um, but to really see the structures and uh, those lines in the nail plate, ideally you do want to use that medi contact medium but I think you can use the medium with either type of dermatoscope. You can use a gel in either, with either, so you can use either scope, um, just not the really cheap derm lights that don't have the, that are more like magnifiers, yeah. I think that's the derm light one. One, yeah. 
it's the same question. No. Can you use polarized dermoscopic nail? Do, do you, yeah, the same question. What diseases cause nail pitting? Um, nail pitting can be seen in psoriasis, which was what we talked about uh, a moment ago, but you can see it in other conditions. You can see it in alopecia areata. Um, you can see it in occasionally even in patients who have lichen planus affecting their nails. You can get pits. Um, those are probably the, the three most common conditions to cause nail pits. Uh, There's lots of diseases that cause alterations of the nail surface, so kind of a roughness. Pits are classically what Jenny showed, which is like this indentation, like, like a jab into the nail. Yeah, but anything that causes inflammation of the skin around the nail, so hand dermatitis, any form of eczema, psoriasis, lichen planus, anything that causes inflammation here will change the surface of the nail plate. So it's just important to realize that that is not a very specific, like only one disease causes nail changes. Um, how do you usually do a nail biopsy? There's a number of different ways to do the biopsy and, and your exam can help perhaps localize where you need to do that biopsy. So, you know, if you see that the pigment is primarily on the top of that nail plate, not on the lower part, you know that your lesion is coming from the proximal nail fold back behind your cuticle. Um, the way that, that I usually do it is um, to reflect back the proximal nail fold, make little incisions on either side of the nail fold, reflect it back, try and visualize the, the lesion if you can, um, and do a, a small puncher excision or little tiny elliptical excision um, in that location, and then you can just suture back your proximal nail fold. Um, I do know that there are people that will actually do punch biopsies right through the nail plate into the, the nail bed. Um, I personally haven't done it that way. How do you do it, Jess? So I have this thing with eyeballs and nails. So, and brains. I don't just, I knew there were some things I couldn't do. Um, so nails make me a little queasy. Um, so one of the most surgeons in our practice does all the nail biopsies. Um, but I think what's really important to realize is while it's super easy for us and we're like whipping derma blades around and doing biopsies all the time, nail biopsies are not like that at all. It's much more involved. It involves often a digital block of the nerves. You often are constricting the blood vessels because there's just so much blood and blood flow and you have to be cautious about how long that tourniquet is on. Um, it's pretty painful. And it's also important to realize that you don't remake nail matrix. So if you're worried and you take a big piece, it's not going to come back. And now that nail matrix is now going to create a nail plate that is much more thin, fragile, and that's the way the person's nail is going to be forever. So essentially you scar and permanently damage the nail matrix. So that's why we tend to be sort of like, I wish it was easier to do nail biopsies, but it's not. And there's a downside um, because that nail plate is potentially going to be damaged forever afterwards. So um, there are some workshops both at the AAD and through other organizations where you can kind of see them done and really learn the nuances of how it can go wrong, how to do it right, where to do the sampling, because it's just not something that's easy to explain in 30 seconds at the podium. Agreed. Have you seen an increase? I'm not sure. I think that question got cut off. Do you perform at the matrix or resect the cuticle? So again, depending on where it is, um, generally, most of the nail bi biopsies that are needed are of the matrix. 
I like the question at the top, so yes. Yeah, is looking at the tip of the nail helpful to determine what part of the matrix is coming from? So yeah, so when, when you look at the nail on end, um, the top part of the nail is made by cells of the proximal nail matrix closer to the knuckle here. Um, when you look at pigment that's on the bottom side of it, it's made by the distal matrix, the cells out by the lunula. Um, so it kind of grows the nail together um, from bottom and top, they kind of adhere. So that looking on end, you can sometimes see pigment just on the top or bottom of the nail. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.